fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and this week we're going to be studying Acts chapter 16 through 21. My goal is to help you to either teach or study the scriptures with more relevancy and power. As you watch, if you find this material helpful, I would love it if you hit the like and the subscribe buttons uh, down below and, and share the channel with others. And teachers, if you'd like access to the resources that I make for teachers, just go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources. Now, if you're ready, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. For an icebreaker, pull out a cookie, a donut, a piece of cake, or any kind of delicious treat, and just start eating it in front of your students. And really make a big deal out of how tasty it is. With each bite, just, mmm, wow, this is, this is so good. And then finish eating it and say, well, that was delicious. Let's go ahead and get started with the lesson. And then act as if you're going to continue. Now, more than likely, somebody is going to protest, uh, especially if you're teaching the youth. And they're going to ask, didn't you bring some for us? Or, well, that's rude. You're not going to share. Which is exactly what you want them to say, because then you can lead them into the lesson with something like, why do you think that's rude? What would have been the polite thing to do? But if you, if you have a quieter class where nobody seems to say anything, you could always get the ball rolling just by asking, how did you feel while you were watching me eat in front of you? And they may respond with, well, it made me hungry. Uh, I wanted to eat some too. Well, the gospel is the same way. We, as members of Christ's church, have been given the delicious gift of truth. Just like the fruit of the tree of life, it's the most sweet, the most pure, the most desirable and most joyous thing to our souls. With something that good, we should share it. Do you remember Lehi when he partakes of the fruit? What was his first desire? To share it with his family. Uh, with something this good, it would almost be rude not to share it. And another approach here that you could use to introduce this lesson, you could just simply ask them uh, what they like to do right after they've watched a great movie, read a great book, or eaten at a great new restaurant. You can almost guarantee that somebody's going to say that they usually want to tell other people about it. It's a natural human reaction to want to share something good with others around us. And if you'd indulge me for a minute, I'd love to share a quick personal story uh, of a time when I felt that truth really sunk deep into my soul. And it was the first day of my mission. And my senior companion had taken me tracting for the very first time. And he did the first couple of doors to kind of show me how to do it. And then turned to me and said, okay, elder, now it's your turn. And I was, I was so nervous. I remember going up to the door. This was in, in Silverton, Oregon. And knocking on the door, palms sweaty, heart racing. And, and I knocked and this woman came to the door. And as soon as she saw me, oh, she was, she was so upset. She started swearing at us, uh, uh, told us to leave her alone and to never come back. And 
And me, this little greeny missionary, I backed away from the door and I said, oh, we're so sorry for bothering you. Uh, we won't come back again. Sorry. And she slammed the door and we, and we walked away from the house. After a little distance, my companion turned to me and he said very sternly, Elder, don't ever do that again. And I, and I said, what? what? What did I do? What did I do wrong? And he said, never apologize for trying to share the gospel with somebody. We, we can be polite. We aren't pushy. We're respectful. But we never apologize. All you're doing is trying to bring the goodness and the truth of the gospel into their life. And there's no reason to be sorry for that. And that was a, a powerful lesson for me. It really made me realize just how grateful I am that I have the knowledge of the restored gospel. We have this amazing, delicious gift in our hands. So we can be confident and gracious in our efforts to share that amazing treat of the gospel with other people. And if there was anybody that really understood the deliciousness of the gospel principle and the desire to share it, that person would be Paul. He's one of the best examples of how to share, how to be a great missionary, a great minister of the truth. Now, I told you last week that missionary work was going to be a major recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. This week is no exception. In fact, this lesson is going to extend past the boundaries of the assigned chapters and this week's Come Follow Me, because sometimes there's value in pulling back from the chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse approach and examining the big picture. This week, I'd like to focus my attention on the example of Paul as a witness. And Paul is going to answer four key questions for us here. He's going to answer the questions who, when, how, and where. Who should we share the gospel with? When should we share the gospel? How should we share the gospel? And where should we share the gospel? And for each question, a different challenge or activity to help guide us through these questions. Challenge number one. We're going to start by answering the question, who? Throughout the book of Acts, who does Paul share the gospel with? And this is going to be a fill-in-the-blank challenge a bit of a game. And I'm going to give you the chapter that the answer is in and then display a verse in that chapter with the description of who Paul is teaching missing. It's going to be a blank there or a, a number of blanks. Your task will be to find the verse the answer is in. And as a teacher, I would tell this to my students and whoever could raise their hand first and share the word or words that go in the blanks they, they get a, a, a treat, right? They win. And so I'll usually have a, a bowl of candy at the front and I'll throw out a piece to the person who identifies the answer first. But as you go through these, encourage your students to mark these individuals in one color under the label of who in their scriptures. And I'll go ahead and reveal the answers here for you on the video so you can see what they are. So we're going to start all the way back in chapter 14 with this phrase, 
And who is Paul sharing the gospel with? A cripple here, or a lame man, somebody somebody who had never walked before. Then to chapter 16, a certain damsel, or a young woman. In chapter 17, women and men. In chapter 20, a young man. Also in chapter 20, Jews and Greeks. Chapter 21, an old disciple. Same chapter, Gentiles. Also in chapter 21, the people. Big crowd of people. To chapter 23, the council. And that would mean the Jewish council, the, the Sanhedrin. Also in 23, near the end, the governor of the land. And then in chapter 25, Caesar, the most powerful man in the world at that time. And then in chapter 26, he shares with the king. Now, this is not a comprehensive list of all the people that Paul shares the gospel with. But it does give you a good sense of his approach and really answers our question. And how would you answer that question now? As you look at that list, in short, who was Paul willing to share the gospel with? I'd answer it this way. All people, male and female, young and old, healthy and sick, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, high and low. There isn't anyone Paul excludes. Nobody that he won't share the gospel with. Put him in front of another human being, and odds are he's going to testify. Therefore, who should we be willing to share the gospel with? All people. We shouldn't exclude anyone in our efforts. All right, how about when? When does Paul share the gospel? And this one's a little bit shorter, but what we're looking for is time-related words and phrases. When is Paul sharing? And the challenge for this one is a short crossword puzzle. It's only uh, uh, six questions long. You can make it a contest by putting them into companionships and seeing which pair can finish first. But be sure to tell them that the blacked-out squares mean that there is more than one word in the answer. It means it's a phrase. So while they go through the answers, encourage them to mark those words and phrases in a different color under the label of when in their scriptures. And so here are the answers. For one across, Acts 26, verse 7. The answer is day and night. Then four across, in Acts chapter 17, verse 17, the answer is daily. Five across, Acts 28, verse 23, says he teaches from morning till evening. Now to the down clues, down number two, chapter 20, verse 18, it says he taught at all seasons. 
and all seasons. And then in that same chapter, three down, verse seven, he taught until midnight. So if you look at that list of words, when does Paul share the gospel? And when should we share the gospel? I would answer that with, at all times. Paul doesn't care whether it's early or late, winter or summer, day or night. He's willing to testify. He doesn't just wait around for a convenient time. There's no time that's not a good time to share. Next question. How? How does Paul share the gospel? Or, or under what conditions will he share? And for this question, a much simpler approach. Just a, a teacher walkthrough marking activity with an encouragement to your students to mark each phrase as you go in a new color under the label of how. And so in chapter 17, verse 2, how is Paul teaching and testifying? He reasoned with them out of the scriptures. We see that word come up again in chapter 18, verse 4, and chapter 18, verse 19. And then in 18, verse 5, he testified that Jesus was the Christ. Paul is going to bear testimony of Jesus over and over again, all throughout his life. Also in chapter 18, verse 5, and 19, verse 8, and in 19, verse 26, the word that's common in those verses is persuading. Paul sought to persuade people to believe the truths that he was teaching. Now, verse 8 also uses the word disputing, which, which I don't like as much, but I don't think that's used in the context of arguing or quarreling. I could be wrong, but I think that means discussion, answering questions, resolving concerns, defending his faith. Because in the accounts that we actually have, where we get to hear Paul teach and testify as a missionary, there's no argumentative spirit in it. He's a persuader, not an intellectual bully. I like this description so far of how he's sharing. He didn't try to manipulate people into the gospel. He didn't try to prove them into the gospel. He didn't try to intimidate or bribe or compel. He reasoned, persuaded, discussed, testified. It's a pretty good example of how to share the gospel with others. It's good, good for us to consider this because I think that sometimes we tend to rely on, on just that last one, testifying, which is super important. It's key to the process. But we've also got to learn to be good at reasoning and persuading too. In chapter 20, verse 19, he teaches with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which in this case means uh, trials and challenges. In the next verse, keeping back nothing. Paul always gave his all and never held anything back. He's a great example of somebody who was willing to waste and wear out his life in bringing to light the truth. As it says in Doctrine and Covenants 123, 13. Chapter 20, verse 22. Following the Spirit. Not knowing 
the things that would befall him in the future. He witnessed with complete faith, not knowing the outcome. Kind of like Nephi going to Jerusalem without knowing what he would do. Just trusting the Spirit. Chapter 20, verse 27. Never shunned to declare the counsel of God. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He didn't hold things back that were hard to teach or that he thought might be mocked or difficult to accept. Sometimes we may want to hold some things back because they aren't politically correct or they're challenging or they're difficult to talk about. But not Paul. He always taught the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Chapter 20, verse 31. He warned them with tears. And I like that phrase. Usually when we give warnings, we do it with a different emotion. We warn with sternness or anger or seriousness or a raised voice. Paul warned with tears. And that shows that his motivation uh, for warning people was always love and concern for them. And then finally, uh, I'm cheating a little bit here and I'm pulling this one out of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. But I believe these verses perfectly describe the conditions under which Paul was willing to testify. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So, my friends, how does Paul share the gospel? In what circumstances? In all things. And doing it in a loving, humble, persuading, spirit-inspired way. The same way in which we should strive to share. Now, where does Paul share the gospel? Location, location, location is the challenge here. And here's the way I like to do this. If I have a big whiteboard or a chalkboard at the front, I'll usually create the following chart and challenge my entire class to see how fast they can fill it in together. Or if you want to divide them into teams, you, you could put this on a handout, which I'll make available, and you could challenge them to see which team can fill it in correctly first. But you give them the verses, and they search to see if they can find the location where Paul is testifying. And we're not looking for names of cities or, or countries in this, in this activity, but, but specific places. So, for example, here, this first one, Acts 16.13. Where is Paul testifying? By a riverside. Now, 16.23, he's testifying in prison. In chapter 17, verse 17, in a synagogue, or the church, and also in that same verse, in the market. 
in chapter 18, verse 7, a certain man's house. Chapter 19, verse 9, in a school. Chapter 19, verse 29, in a theater. A theater full of angry and shouting Ephesians. We'll look at that story in a moment. Chapter 20, verse 7. Now this one might take a little interpretive work, but it's upon the first day of the week where the disciples came together to break bread. So what do we call that? It's a sacrament meeting. Paul will testify and teach during a sacrament meeting. Chapter 20, verse 20. He'll testify publicly and from house to house. Chapter 21, verse 26, in the temple. Chapter 23, verse 35, in the judgment hall. Chapter 25, verse 23, in the place of hearing, or the king's court. Chapter 27, verse 15, on a ship. And this is another fascinating story that we're going to cover in a future week. But he teaches and testifies during the middle of a storm at sea. And I can't wait to go over that story with you. That's Acts chapter 27. It's got so many great principles to teach us. And then finally, in chapter 28, two verses here. Verse 23, in his lodging. And verse 30, in his own hired house. Now, before we conclude this question, you may or may not want to do this, this, this next section of teaching, but there are three specific stories from these locations that he's teaching that I would want my students to understand in a, a little more depth because I really feel they, they capture the spirit of Paul as a witness and his depth of commitment. So I might just summarize these stories briefly or, or walk my students through them to help them catch that vision. So Acts chapter 16, verse 23 through 33, when Paul testifies in prison. And what's going on here is that Paul and his companions have been beaten and thrown into a prison. When an earthquake starts, their chains fall off their hands and all of the doors swing open. Now, if you're Paul, what are you going to do in that instance? Run, right? Get out of there. Free yourself. But when the doors open, there's the jailer standing there. And he sees this. And in despair, he grabs his sword and he's about to kill himself. I mean, he's responsible for the prison. And and he sees this and he figures they're going to escape and, and, and I'm going to be killed. Might as well just end it now. We already saw last week what Herod did to the soldiers in charge of Peter when he escaped. But does Paul run away? No. In verse 28, he sees the jailer and he cries out with a loud voice, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he testifies and starts to teach this guy the gospel. Only Paul could make a missionary contact out of a prison break. And I can just see him running down the corridor of the prison and seeing the jailer and stopping and saying, Hi, 
I'm Elder Paul, and this is my companion, Elder Silas, and we're representatives from the Church of Jesus Christ of Ancient Day Saints, and we have a message to share with you. Paul is just, he's just an amazing missionary. Uh, and the jailer gets baptized along with his whole family. Such a great story. Now, take them to chapter 19, verses 23 through 40, when Paul testifies in a theater, or he wants to. Let me tell you the story. Uh, here, Paul is teaching in Ephesus, and they're beginning to have quite a bit of success. And the silversmiths of Ephesus, who, who make these little silver statues of Diana, start to realize that Paul's teaching about Jesus is bad for business. They're not going to sell as many statues this way. And so they get together and say in verse 27, so that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Now, which of the two concerns do you think they're most worried about? Diana's reputation or their own paychecks? I'll let you decide. But either way, they plan to stir up the people. You know how it goes. When reasonable arguments lack, they are replaced by shouting. So they start yelling, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they run out into the streets and they're calling this out. And the pandemonium spreads. And the people of the city all rush into the theater and continue shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. For two hours. Verse 32 says that most of the people didn't even know why they were there, just that they got caught up in the frenzy of the crowd. By the way, is a great description of our world. Nobody wants to listen to the other side anymore. They just want to shout at each other. They're not like, they're not like Paul, who reasons and testifies and persuades with humility. At this point, the Jews send a man named Alexander, who the people know, out in front of the crowd to try and calm them down and explain. But what do they do as soon as they find out he's a Jew? Verse 34. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice for about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Same thing today. Nobody seems to be willing to even entertain somebody else's ideas based solely on who they are. Or when they find out who they are. Oh, she's a Mormon. No need to listen to her. Oh, he, he's a Democrat. We can dismiss everything he has to say. Oh, they're, they're poor. They're not my gender. They're from a different country. We'll cancel them. We'll shout them down. Better solution is in verse 36. But we should be quiet and do nothing rashly. Don't have to agree, but hopefully we can at least listen, talk, Seek to understand. But as this giant theater full of angry Ephesians is ringing out with the cry, what does Paul want to do? Knowing what you know about him, what would you expect? Look at verse 30. And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. So he's like, hey, there's a crowd in there. I'm going to go testify. And he's about to run in, and, and, and his, his friends, they have to pull him back. And they're like, Paul, you're crazy. You're going to get torn to pieces in there. 
And he's like, but but there's an audience. Right? I, I want to share the gospel. Uh, one more. Paul testifying at the temple. Chapter 21, verses 26 through 40. And in this story, Paul heads off to Jerusalem. And everybody knows that this is dangerous. He's not a popular man there. And he's warned by many of his friends and converts not to go. But he feels compelled by the Spirit. So while in Jerusalem, he's warned that there are slanderous reports circulating that he's been teaching Jewish people to turn against the law of Moses and that they shouldn't circumcise their children. So they encourage him to go and do something Jewish to show the people that he's still committed. And so Paul takes some men into the temple to perform their purification rites and to make an offering in good faith. So when he goes in to make the offering, his enemies see an opportunity. So it says in verse 28 that they, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people, and the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. So they're accusing him of bringing Greeks into the temple, which was forbidden to bring anybody past the court of the Gentiles. This is the most holy place in Judaism, a place only for Jews. Now, it, it's not true. It's a lie. He hasn't brought Gentiles in. But, but they know that Paul is accustomed to hanging out with Gentiles. So they're using this lie to rile the people up against him. And it works. The people grab him, and they start beating him up and, and trying to kill him. Thank heavens for the Roman soldiers in this case, because they rush in and they stop the riot and they arrest Paul for his own safety and start to haul him up the steps of the Antonia Fortress to, to figure out what the problem is. So that's the setting. Here's Paul, almost beaten to death by this group of people, and he's been rescued. And if it were me, I would want to get as far away from that crowd as possible. Remember, Paul's character. He looks around, and what does he see? It's a crowd of people. So what does he want to do? He looks up at the Roman soldiers, and he asks in verse 39, suffer me to speak to the people. He wants to testify. Please, just give me a chance to share the gospel with these people. Gosh, don't you just love Paul? Does this give you a good sense of his character? as a witness of Christ. If we put all these together, do you just look at all the places and situations where Paul was willing to testify. If you wanted to add one more additional layer to the question, you could display this chart as well, which shows all the different specific locations we know where Paul testified of Christ. So, in summary, how would you answer our question? Where will Paul share the gospel? In all places. So to tie everything together, what has Paul just taught us about being a witness of Christ? That we too should strive to be witnesses of Christ to all people, at all times, in all things, and in all places. 
Does that sound familiar to anybody out there? Let me take you to Mosiah 18.9 for a moment. This is when Alma describes the covenant of baptism to the Nephite believers at the waters of Mormon and explains the commitments that they are making by entering the waters of baptism. What is one of those covenants? Covenant we all make when we become disciples of Christ? To stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that ye may be in, even until death. If you want to see an example of somebody who really gets that, watch to watch somebody keep that covenant, it's Paul. The greatest illustration of that commitment that I can think of anywhere. So to liken the scriptures, what could we do to be more like Paul this week? How can we become better witnesses? Do I need to expand my vision uh, of who? Are there people that I hold back from sharing with uh, for whatever reason? Do I need to expand my when vision? Have I been waiting around too long for a convenient time to share the gospel with somebody? Or do I need to just be more willing to share at any time? Do I need to expand my how vision? Are there aspects of the way that I share that I need to improve? Do I need to add more reasoning, persuading, warning, or testifying to my witnessing efforts? Or do I need to expand my where vision? Do I need to look for opportunities everywhere I go, under any circumstances, in any location? We too can be like Paul. I pray that we may all try and imitate him. Look for more opportunities to stand as witnesses of God, to share the delicious fruit, the treat of the gospel with others, even when circumstances aren't ideal. And if we do this, I believe that I can promise that we, like Paul, will have many successes and failures. There will be people that love us and people that despise and mock us. We'll experience great triumphs and great opposition. But like Paul, God will support us throughout it all. And we'll find joy as his witnesses. Because we know something. The gospel is delicious. It goes down easy. It tastes good. We can't help but share it. It's too wonderful of a thing to just keep to ourselves. And here, whatever treat that you began the lesson with, what you ate in front of your students, I'd pull out a plate or a bowl full of that treat and share one with each of your students at that point. Now, there is another great story from these chapters that I believe uh, deserves its own special treatment. And that's a story that comes from Acts chapter 17, where Paul teaches a group of people from a very famous city. So for an icebreaker, I like to bring in a stack of textbooks representing various areas of study. Math, biology, physics, philosophy, chemistry. Just get a bunch of scholarly or educational type books. If you don't happen to have any lying around your home, you could always check some out from the library. And you say, 
These books represent a wealth of knowledge. What do you feel is the most important subject that you can study? The most important thing that you can know is math, history, science, philosophy, physics. Maybe invite them to share their thoughts with their partner. Then we're going to transition to the scriptures by saying that Paul is going to teach us the most important thing that we can know. And he's going to teach it to a group of the smartest people of his time in a city that was known for its intelligent citizens. The key to understanding this story is in the setting. In fact, this city, in Paul's day certainly, and even now, in a way, continues to embody the idea of learning and education. Can you find the name of that city somewhere in Acts chapter 17? And there, there are some other cities mentioned in that chapter, but, but eventually they're going to find it. The city is Athens. Athens, Greece. Certain cities are known for certain qualities. Paris is the city of love. Vienna is the city of music. Jerusalem is the holy city. Las Vegas is sin city. But Athens is the city of knowledge. It's the city that represents the birthplace of Western civilization. Just think of all the things the Greeks contributed to humanity and, and our culture. Philosophy, democracy, art, architecture, medicine, the sciences, sports, theater, and more. All of these areas were either started here or they reached an advanced level of sophistication here. Athens is the city of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Pericles, Hippocrates, Archimedes, and many others. It was the most educated and advanced culture of its day. And to that setting, comes a Jewish tent maker. And it says in verse 16 that as he walks through the city, his spirit is stirred within him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. You know, lots of temples and altars and statues, all those gods of Greek religion and mythology. And eventually, Paul's preaching in the city catches the attention of some of the thinkers of the day. And I love what they say in verse 18. What will this babbler say? And isn't that just the epitome of the attitude a lot of intellectual types have towards religion? Ah, these babblers, what can they teach us? How does faith even hold a candle to, to science and reason? They say, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. Which to that, I, I think, you're calling Paul's God a strange god? I mean, if you know anything about Greek mythology, those, those were some strange gods. But, but anyway, and so he ends up at Areopagus, uh, or, or Mars Hill, which is a big rock just below the Acropolis, which was, uh, was a gathering place of sorts, a city council area. And Paul says in verse 21 that the Athenians 
spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Sounds like the social media center of its day, the Twitter of ancient Greece. And there at Mars Hill, Paul is going to give a very famous speech. And remember the setting, ironically, with, with all the things these Greeks know and understand. There is one key piece of information that they've missed. Something unknown to them. And what is it? What don't they understand? See if you can find it in the chapter. And it shouldn't be too hard because it's in big capital letters. They don't know God. They built an altar to the unknown God. You know, the Greeks, they wanted to make sure that they pleased all the possible gods out there. So, so just to be safe, they make an altar to the unknown God, this Jewish God that they've heard about. And so Paul says, let me declare him unto you, this, this, this God that you don't know. And quick side note here. Don't be thrown off by Paul saying that the Greeks were too superstitious in verse 22. That's actually a compliment. He's saying that they are very religious and careful in their devotions. You can see that down in the footnotes. Also, when he says that they are ignorantly worshiping the unknown God, that's a bit of a harsher translation than the original Greek suggests. He's just calling attention to the fact that they don't know anything about this God. And Paul wants to help them understand. And so with my class, I would send them in to read verses 24 through 31 by themselves with this one question in mind. What is your favorite truth about God that Paul teaches here? And why? Paul's going to reveal to us some of the most important things that we can know about God. So here are some of the answers that they could give and a few of my thoughts on some of them. Verse 24, He made the world and all things therein. I think that's an interesting one to start with. We come to know God by what He has created. You can tell a lot about an artist by what he paints. This is one of my favorite ones because I love the outdoors. And when I'm standing on top of a mountain, or sitting next to a beautiful lake or the beach, watching a storm roll in, exploring the sandstone canyons of southern Utah, I feel close to God. A God that can create such beauty and color and majesty and detail and diversity must be a truly magnificent being. A being that I want to know. Also in verse 24, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And I'm going to pair that with the next one, which is he doesn't need anything from us, but he gives all things to us. I think these verses are showing us that we can find God in many different places, not just in one specific location. And that verse may sound bad to a member of the church because we build temples and we call them the house of the Lord. Now, I don't think this is a condemnation of, uh, of temple building, though. Paul worshipped in the temple at Jerusalem. But remember our audience, our setting here. The Acropolis is sitting right behind him in full view of the Greeks that he's speaking to. And the Greeks built all kinds of temples 
temples to every one of the myriad of gods that they had. I think the big difference between our temples and Greek temples is that, that Greek temples were built more for the benefit of the gods, to please them. They, they needed to be built for them. Our temples, I would argue, are built for us, to bless us, to bless our ancestors, to give us a place where we can feel closer to God. But it's not the only place that we can find God. We can find him at home, church, in nature, in our relationships, in our own minds. I think that's what Paul is getting at here. God is on the giving side, not the receiving. He already has everything he needs. He doesn't ask us to worship him and pray to him and give tithing to his church because he needs any of those things. He doesn't. Rather, he knows the blessing and goodness that is going to come to us, his children, when we do these things. It's about us. His work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. We are his purpose. We are his work. We are his glory. And that wasn't the nature of the Greek gods. Maybe that's why they thought Paul's God was so strange. A God that actually cared about mankind. Verse 26, He has made of one blood all the nations of man. God sees all mankind of the same blood. We are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Remember Peter's dream? He's the Lord of all and loves all of his children. It's only man that places labels and categories on itself, dividing ourselves up into nations and races and political affiliations. God sees us as all one blood. Also in verse 26, he's determined the times and bounds. I mean, that's Paul's way of saying that God is in control and is very much a part of what happens on this earth. He's not an absentee deity. Verse 27, we can find God if we seek him and feel after him. And if we feel after him, we will find him. And that's probably one of my favorite phrases in this chapter. How does one come to know the unknown God? We seek him. We feel after him. God wants us to put some effort into this search. In order to gain knowledge about math or biology or physics, we have to study and experiment and put effort into it. Do we expect it to be any different when it comes to the most important knowledge that we can gain? We've got to, we've got to seek it. We've got to feel after it. A good question to ask here might be, how does somebody feel after God? Some ideas? Pray. Talk to him. Study his word in the scriptures and, and in the words of the living prophets. Visit his house, the temple, as often as you can. Serve him by serving others. Show your trust in him by being obedient to his commandments and counsels. And the more we feel after God, the more real he'll become. Verse 27, he's not far from us. God isn't hiding. Satan would have us think that God's hard to find. But I don't think so. He's a lot easier to get to know than the world sometimes lets on. I don't believe that God is simply just up. He's around and next to him. Feel after him and, and you'll find him. 
Verse 28, he is the power by which we live and move. Again, God's all about giving. He's provided us with the gift of life and has made our experience on earth possible. Also, verse 28, we are also his offspring, children of God. So I like to ask my students if they know what hymn in the hymn book is always translated first when put into a new language. And it's, I am a child of God. It's the most fundamental doctrine of our faith. One of the first things that missionaries are encouraged to teach investigators. We are children of heavenly parents. It isn't a mighty God, puny, insignificant, moral kind of relationship, like the Greeks believed, but a loving parent-child relationship. Verse 29, he's not an idol made by the hands or even the thought of man. Man did not create God. God created man. Verse 30, I like this one. God winks at ignorance sometimes. Do you get what that means? That we believe in a winking God? A God that can overlook or pardon ignorant sin? I think this suggests the ease with which God can forgive man and tells us of his merciful nature. In this case, he's winking at idolatry. If God can wink at idolatry, then maybe he'll wink at me sometimes too, hopefully. However, still, verse 30, he does command us all to repent. He does expect something from us. He's not a permissive God either. He requires some things. And in verse 31, he will judge us. And what will be the standard by which he judges us? By that man whom he hath ordained. Jesus. His son will be the standard by which we are judged. So if we want that judgment to go well, we should strive to be like Jesus. Finally, he assures us that he will resurrect us from the dead. Which kind of, at that point, blows things up with the Athenians, and, and they start to mock him. The doctrine of resurrection is really going to challenge the Gentiles. And we'll see that again in 1 Corinthians 15. But our truth here, can summarize it all down into one thing, the most important knowledge we can gain is a knowledge of God. So like in the scriptures, a personal question. How well do you know God? Now it's easy for us to point at the pagan Athenians here as needing to figure this one out. But could some of those phrases describe us at times? Are we sometimes a little too superstitious? Overly religious or dogmatic in our beliefs and practices? Do we ignorantly worship God because that's just what we've always done and it's what our parents did? How well have we come to know God? How personal is our relationship with Him? There are things that I used to think about God that I've changed my mind on over the years. I've learned more about him and his nature. Can we, be, can we be humble enough to recognize that there may still be some things that we need to learn about him? Things that we're ignorant of or things that we've gotten wrong? I think we've got to continuously feel after God and seek him all throughout our lives. 
Now, if you do feel like you know God, and I hope you do, how have you come to know that he's there? I imagine that most of you out there probably had some kind of experience that, that helped you to know that God was there and that he knew who you were. Not doesn't have to be some big miraculous thing. It's something small, an answered prayer, a feeling, an experience. But how do you know God? And as a teacher, I'd encourage you to get the ball rolling by sharing a story of your own, an experience of your own, or a time where you came to know God better in some way. And then give them a chance to do the same. And you know what? Why not? I'll go ahead and do one of these myself, just to give you an example. I'll tell you the story of the time when I first felt like I came to know that God was there and that he knew who I was. And that's when I, that's when I was young. Uh, and I'll tell you something. When I was a kid, I was terrified of the water. I mean, deep water. I mean, I could, I could take a bath and a shower, right? But, but whenever I got into the pool, the part of the pool where I couldn't touch the bottom, I panicked. Now, now my parents, they, they tried to help me. They, they, they had me do swimming lessons and, and uh, they, they'd try to encourage me. And I did know how to swim. I, I could swim. I, I, just, I just panicked when I got into deep water. So I remember there would be times where I would be standing at the edge of the pool and, and they'd be encouraging me to jump in and, and I would be bawling my eyes out. I'd just be crying like, I can't do it. And, my parents were, were almost beginning to despair. I was getting older, and I, and I still didn't know how to swim. I think I must have been nine or ten, or I, I don't know. But, but I was getting to the point where I needed to know, where I should have known how to swim. And so I remember that our family took a, a little family vacation down to Moab. And we stayed in a hotel. And as soon as we drove into the parking lot, my heart sank. Because there was a pool at the hotel. And I knew exactly what was going to happen. Dad was going to say, let's go swimming. And everybody was going to go out. And while we were there, he'd encourage me to go to the deep end and, and, and try to jump in. And I was going to end up bawling. And that's exactly what happened, right? And so there I am at the side of the pool. Complete strangers are trying to encourage me to jump in. And so I think my dad, he, he got an idea. So finally, he, he walked around the pool, came up behind me, and he, he put his hand on my shoulder. <laughs> he didn't push me in. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, you know, I think I know what we need to do. Let's go pray. Let's ask Heavenly Father to help you with this. So the only place at that pool that had any kind of privacy was uh, under the water slide. There was a, a water slide there at the pool. And I, I still remember what color it was. It was pink. So we went under the pink water slide, and I said a prayer. And it was just a, a simple child's prayer. I said something like, Heavenly Father, please help me to overcome my fear of the water. And I can still remember how it felt. The fear just seemed to drain right out of my body, right? Right down my legs and out through my toes. It just, it was just gone. 
I, I could feel the fear leaving me. And I, I walked out from under that slide and over to the edge of the deep end, and I jumped in, and I swam across the pool. And I'll tell you, to this day, I have never felt that fear in that way again. And I know I can tell you, I can guarantee you, it wasn't just me tricking myself or convincing myself into not being afraid anymore. My, my fear was too deep-seated, too real to, to do that. I know that Heavenly Father answered my prayer. And I know that doesn't sound like a huge important deal. I'm not so sure Heavenly Father cares so much that a, that a 10-year-old learns how to swim. But he did care that I knew that he was there and that he listened to me. My testimony, <laughs> that's really part of the foundation of my faith. I gained it under a pink water slide in Moab, Utah. And I believe our Heavenly Father will give us those experiences as we feel after him. And we'll come to know this, this unknown God. And hopefully he won't remain unknown to us. Remember that getting to know God is the most important knowledge that we'll ever gain. We can be smarter than an Athenian if we make this knowledge a priority in our lives. I promise you that God is knowable because he's real. And he's our father. And he loves us. And he's not far from us. But we've got to feel after him. Feel after God and you'll find him. Well, those two areas are where I would spend most of my time in these chapters. But there's some other really good stuff in these and it's just so hard to leave stuff behind. But, but if I tried to do full lessons on each of these ideas, this video would be three hours long and, and ain't nobody got time for that. So <laughs> allow me to just throw out a few other quick ideas and insights that you may choose to build a lesson around if you feel so inspired. Uh, or, or these might just enrich your own personal scripture study. But, but go to Acts 16 real quick with me. Verses 6 through 10. I love what, what this teaches me about how the Spirit works. If you were to take a look at the map of Paul's second missionary journey, you can tell that he's making a very methodical east-to-west path to all the cities that he's preached in before. And he's about to go into Asia. It's the most logical next step. When the Spirit says, nope, not that way. So he decides to go to Bithynia instead. But again, he gets a prompting of the Spirit. No, not that way. And if you're Paul at this moment, what would be your question for the Lord? Okay, Lord, which way should I go? You're telling me where not to go, but where do you want me to go? And it seems that for a time, there is no answer. So he waits around in Troas for, no, for who knows how long. And then he has a vision where a man from Macedonia appears and says to come over and help them. And he, he finally gets an answer, some guidance. And I don't know about you, but it seems that I've had that kind of experience before too. There are times when I wish the Spirit would just directly tell me what to do. But he doesn't always tell me the exact counsel that I'd like to hear. But sometimes 
I do get no, not that way guidance, which is very helpful. Finding my career, my spouse kind of worked that way. I remember considering certain career paths or young women that I was dating where the spirit would clearly direct, no, not this way. But then, then the guidance kind of stopped there. And I'd be like, well, where should I go? What should I do? And it wasn't until I decided to act and continue to move forward in some direction that the light that I needed would eventually come. And sometimes it would come after a significant amount of time. But I think these verses are a good illustration of that principle. The Spirit will sometimes tell us what not to do, but then require us to move forward in faith until we know what we should do. Go to Acts 17, verses 10 through 12. I love the description of the people of Berea who received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily. We need to follow the example of the Bereans. Hopefully we have open minds when things are taught to us by the scriptures and by the prophets and to have readiness of mind to receive those truths. Personally, I hope that you don't read your scriptures. I wish everybody in the church would just stop reading their scriptures. And I'm serious about that. I hope that they will do as the Bereans did, which is to search the scriptures. We have way too many people who simply read them, like they would read a magazine or a novel. No, that the scriptures need to be engaged with. We need to study them, search them, ponder them, meditate on them, feast on them, but never read them. The scriptures will, will, will feed us for a lifetime if we approach them that way. Go to Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Since I'm speaking to gospel teachers here, you've got to take a quick look at, at Apollos. Right? Apollos is a hero of mine, a teacher that I aspire to be like. Look at the description of, of what kind of a teacher he was. He was an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in the spirit. He spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. He spoke boldly. He helped people much, mightily convinced them and showed by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. I hope and pray that we can all become Apollos's right? and learn to teach like this great man. And finally, briefly here, you just got to love the story of Eutychus. If you haven't read this before, read it now. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12. And I'll, I'll just let you read it. But to me, maybe the moral of the story of that one is, don't fall asleep in church, okay? Unless Paul is there, then, then maybe you'll be okay. But uh, just a, a delightful story there. And, and that is going to do it for this week, my friends. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I hope that you learned something. And if you did, I encourage you to share it with somebody that you feel I hope that you'll join me again next week as we continue in the book of Acts. 
Thank you, everyone, so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.